Welcome to the ILO Social Finance Podcast on financial inclusion, impact insurance, and sustainable investing. Our podcast brings insights from around the world, highlighting how financial services contribute to social and economic development. Hi, everyone. My name is Lisa Morgan, and I am your host today. Today's episode is on COVID-19, insurance and financial inclusion. We cover a lot of ground from the experience of the pandemic in Asia. And uh, already during the course of January, we started becoming aware of this uh, uh, outbreak in, in China. How to interpret the data, the impact on clients. You know, a lot of people are going to get infected. And what insurers should be doing and thinking about. But insurance fundamentally serves social need. It's there to help people. And I really want to see companies innovating to make sure that even people who have been affected somehow can get cover in future. Welcome again to our listeners. We are extremely pleased to have Greg Solomon joining us for today's podcast. Greg is a fellow actuary who was born in South Africa, lived for many years in London, and now for the last 10 years has been living in Hong Kong. He is a specialist in reinsurance, risk management, and capital management, and over the years has written articles or presented at conferences on various topics, including managing financial metrics, biohacking, and even two years ago was giving talks warning the profession about the impact that even mild pandemics can have on the insurance industry, let alone a major one. At the start of his actuarial career in South Africa, HIV AIDS was a new disease that was having a significant impact on society, although at the time very little was known. In his mid-twenties, Greg was already talking at actuarial and insurance conferences about the impact of HIV AIDS on our industry. So it's no surprise that when COVID-19 burst out onto the scene, Greg immediately started to study this new disease to understand what it is, what it could do, and what the insurance industry should be doing now. So Greg, a very warm welcome. Thanks, Lisa. Now, Greg, you are based in Asia and have been at the forefront of where the COVID-19 pandemic was seen to begin. So this affected your region before it was affecting the rest of the world. And now we're seeing a small number of countries having some days without any new infections. Um, and this is happening in Asia Pacific too. So with this lead, can you tell us a bit about how 2020 has looked from your perspective? I mean, 2020 has been a, a year like, uh, like none other. You know, it started perfectly normal. And uh, already during the course of January, we started becoming aware of this uh, uh, outbreak in, in China. And uh, you know, Chinese New Year was at the end of January. And, uh, you know, we went uh, in Hong Kong, we went into lockdown basically for Chinese New Year. And uh, China became super strict about trying very hard to uh, contain this disease, COVID-19, uh, to make sure that it didn't uh, spread. And there was a huge amount of fear. There was a lot of worry because we knew absolutely nothing about it. And of course, Hong Kong had the uh, significant uh, impact from SARS uh, some years ago. So immediately people in Hong Kong started basically self-locking down. People stopped going to the office. I mean, not everyone, but many people stopped going into the office if their jobs could allow it. Masks were immediately being worn by just about everybody. Hand washing became a thing. People just went straight into the 
the the mode of protection, uh, you know, protecting ourselves, protecting others, and uh, and I think that's why Hong Kong is one of the the the, the places where our pandemic, this this COVID nineteen, seems to be largely contained. Now we also know, and we saw that in Singapore, it looked like Singapore had successfully contained the disease, but because of an outbreak in the dormitories for migrant workers, you know, there have been many more infections that have arisen, and 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 hopefully that gets back under control. But but that's one of the things we've seen. I mean, in China, they were, uh, and I use the word militant, I mean, they were really, really strict about it. But we've seen how China went from a huge number of cases down to very few. So I think the big takeaway is, is the disease can largely be contained. We have to be careful about new waves. You do get individuals who become super spreaders and that's a bit worrying. But a lot of it is just the basics. It's masks and, and gloves uh, for some people. It's washing hands, it's hand sanitizers. It really is the basics. From an actuarial or epidemiological perspective, perhaps you can tell us a bit about why we cannot use the experience of one part of, a, of the world to exactly predict how things might out, unfold in another part of the world. Given the, the challenge with access to accurate data and the talk of, all this talk about flattening the curve, how do you think we should be interpreting the numbers? Lisa, that's a great question because everyone's trying to see uh, what has happened elsewhere in the world to decide what is relevant for them. And, you know, in the beginning, we only really had one source of information. It was the outbreak in, in, in Wuhan. That was all we had available. So that was a great starting point. But we've seen the pattern coming out quite differently soon after that. There was data coming out from South Korea, from Italy, of course, you know, that is spread around Europe and you know, we've seen data from New York. So so this is this is global. And we're seeing that every country is different. And within countries, you know, different states are different, different provinces have got very different experience. So all of these things are helping steer us in a particular direction, but ultimately we need to look at the specifics of the country that we're trying to examine. And there are many factors for this. I mean, we, we know that uh, COVID-19 is more significant for older ages. It's uh, more significant for men. Uh, it's more significant for people with comorbidities like uh, diabetes uh, or heart disease, cancer potentially as well. We know that different countries have got different default methods of treating these patients. And so survival is going to be different from country to country access to hospitals if there is a, a breakout in a rural area compared to a breakout in a major city that's going to uh, look different as well icu beds per person uh, access to ventilators even even the, the classification of these diseases i mean who qualifies as someone who has covid 19 i mean in the beginning people just used to use pcr tests and say yep you have got the virus inside you therefore you're infected but these tests are not perfect and these tests may take hours or, or, or days to get processed. And so now a very quick x-ray where you see that a person's got what they call in glassy lungs, then, then you can say immediately, this person has got COVID-19. We don't need to do another test. So, so all of these issues feed through into how many people get infected, how quickly the disease spreads once there is a group of people, 
how severe it is, who gets into ICU, and unfortunately, who survives and, and who dies. So, yeah, and, and, and perhaps, you know, even if we look at what, what happened in New York, for example, New York now, when the hospitals are not as overwhelmed, the experience is different to New York during the peak of the breakout. Certainly, we saw that in China. In Italy, they were making decisions on, you know, well, this is an old person, so perhaps we won't give them access to to a single bed in ICU. Let's rather put a younger person uh, into uh, an urgent need uh, ICU bed. Very tough decisions, but it just means even in exactly the same city, the experience is different depending on whether the hospitals at that point are overwhelmed or not. So, yeah, it's very, very different, but we can't ignore the information that we have. And, and, and right now, a huge amount of time is being spent on comparing different countries, different cities, different outbreaks, trying to understand what's affecting it. Uh, but there's uh, a lot of information available now compared to just the start of the year. Thanks, Greg. So absolutely, it seems that there is just so much going on behind the data. So thank you for, for pointing out some of those, um, those factors. Now, just going back a bit in time, you were active on the HIV AIDS subcommittee of the Actuarial Society of South Africa quite early in your career. Is there anything that you learned during that time that might be useful for the insurance industry today? Yeah, so... I mean, HIV AIDS has killed something like 30, 35 million people since uh, the, the outbreak, break, outbreak began, uh, what was it, 30 years ago or thereabouts. So, you know, it's, it's been very significant. But of course, because of the mode of spreading, it, things were going a little bit more slowly wasn't the sort of pandemic outbreak that we're seeing right now. So in many ways, the, the, the diseases are different, but in many ways, they're similar. The one thing that I see happening now that happened back then, you know, a lot of people take the attitude, well, well, there's so much uncertainty, it's better to do nothing. If you produce a model which projects where the number of deaths is going to be in a month's time or what is the impact of a lockdown, people are saying, well, we don't know, we're just guessing, so it's better not to do anything. And that's, I think, completely not sensible. We have to make projections, and we are going to get projections wrong. But as the disease continues to grow, as experience grows, it's more valuable for us to refine our models than to wait until the data is available and then say, okay, now we're ready to start building the data. And I'm pleased to see that a, that a lot of epidemiologists and doctors and actuaries and statisticians have been uh, uh, getting very much involved. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, we, we've changed so much now, 2020, compared to, you know, the early 90s. I mean, there's a project going at the moment where they've taken hundreds of papers, data and, and text and dumped it in this giant repository. And they've said to companies who have AI expertise, machine learning expertise, they've said, well, here's this repository of hundreds of papers. Take your uh, machine learning tools, point the engines at this data, and tell us what you see out of that. So, you know, we'll, it'll be very interesting to see what uh, AI is able to extract from all of the research that has been published at the moment. But we, we need to do research. We need to ask questions. One of the things that I'm absolutely thrilled about is people being very open. A lot of data is being made available, and uh, a lot of medical research is actually going through the preprint phase. 
where, where, where people have access to the conclusions before the final peer review, before the final publishing, because things are happening really fast. So, so I think it's just fantastic how, uh, how people are, are, are banding together and trying to make things happen. Another very important lesson is we need to be clear on, on what is the, the outcome we're trying to achieve. You know, I, I remember HIV AIDS, there was this huge us and them situation. Is it a particular race of people who is getting HIV infected? Is it a people with particular sexual preferences who are getting HIV infected? Well, if it is, well, we're going to be okay because we're not that race or we don't have those uh, uh, sexual preferences. And uh, and we need to be clear. It's, it's you know from an insurance company. Are you trying to say, well, people who might get infected, let's keep them at arm's length. Let's do everything we can not to give them insurance cover. Whereas the reality is, insurance provides a significant social good, and so there shouldn't be the goal of trying to immunize the insurance company from what COVID-19 is going to do to the population. It should be really trying to provide risk transfer to help people through this tough time. But, you know, they can't magically provide that support. The money goes out, but the money has to come in. So the goal is to to do actual pricing, to do fair charging for these things. But the goal for some companies, you know, back with HIV AIDS days was to remain completely immunized. For others, it's to serve a social purpose. And we need to make sure that we're doing the right things as an insurance industry now. But yeah, I mean, it's sad. There is a lot of blame, people blaming certain countries for the outbreak and certain individuals for the outbreak and certain organizations for the outbreak. We saw that with HIV AIDS. We're seeing that with COVID-19. That's unfortunate. People need to skip the blame. We need to just focus on getting through this. I totally agree. Thank you, Greg. There's so much wisdom in in what you've just said. And um, I hope that our listeners can really um, take this on board, you know, what what the insurance industry should be doing. And, um, you know, excluding people is is definitely not what we should be doing. So would you mind making a few comments on the effectiveness of lockdowns, exit strategies, virus mutations and vaccinations? So lockdowns work. Uh, it, it's absolutely clear. A pandemic like this spreads when an infected person somehow has contact with another infected person. If people are staying at, at home, closed off largely from the others, if they're super protected when they do go out, firstly, if they're infected, they're not going to infect others. And if others are infected, they're not going to get infected. So it does work. We've seen uh, China had gone from a really bad outbreak to massively containing it in a relatively short period of weeks. And we're seeing other countries many weeks longer than that in their own outbreak, and their outbreaks are still growing. So lockdowns do work. The big question is, so you mentioned exit strategies. I think that's a gr- great question. The reality is right now, Everyone's goal has been, uh, generalizing, but you know, everyone's goal has been, let's control this outbreak. Let's, let's, let's not allow the hospitals to be overwhelmed. And that's been really effective. But now we need to ask ourselves, now what? So in Hong Kong, we had a period of about, I think, three weeks where there was not a single local transmission, which is a huge success. Not one local transmission. 
Uh, and then there were three at the end of that period. So we're, we're constantly aware that we are at risk of, a, of, of another breakout. But, but what do we do? What's Hong Kong's exit strategy? Well, we can't really do anything. We can't say, well, we're okay, so let's start flying to Europe again. Because, of course, we could go to Europe and pick something up and come back again to Hong Kong. So the exit strategy is, to a large degree, it's, it's waiting for a vaccination to come through. And that might succeed in six months' time. That might succeed in two years' time. We may never get a vaccination. I mean, we see even just for the annual flu vaccines, they have to change it every single year. It's based on the previous year's flu mutation, which means a lot of people still get flu in the new season. So we have absolutely no idea what it's going to look like. There are some fundamental mutations of this coronavirus, which means that a person could get infected, recover, and then get infected again by a slightly different mutation. Other studies are suggesting that even people who are infected, they're not finding very high levels of antibodies in their body. So who knows, even for the same mutation, they might still not be safe. Now, I don't want this to come across as, 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 as pessimistic. It is possible to control this disease. It is impacting on the economy. It's impacting, impacting on our lives. But every single day I see another research paper being published about a better understanding of the virus and how it uh, enters the cells and, and correlations with a certain nutrient densities in a person's body. So we're getting a lot of information and, uh, and, and, and we're going to learn. So I'm optimistic that we're going to get something right. But I don't think people should assume that, okay, the government says we're in lockdown until the end of June, and then they think life is going to become normal. You know, I think the biggest uh, uh, thing that we're waiting for is a vaccination. The good news is there are so many countries, the best minds around the world who are looking at this. They are trying so many different angles, different drugs, different vaccinations, different treatment methods, everything. So I am optimistic that at some point, maybe later, not soon, I don't know, but at some point, we're going to make a significant impact on, on the spread and the impact of this condition. Great, thanks. Given the work that the ILO does, I'd like to focus now specifically on higher low income or lower middle income people around the globe. And just thinking about them and insurance, how could COVID-19 be impacting on these lives differently from others? And how is the insurance industry responding in respect of these segments? Well, I mean, trying to, trying to envision what we mean by people in the uh, lower or middle income populations. Of course, it depends on the country and it depends on the specific subgroup, uh, you know, blue collar workers versus white collar workers and, and rural versus city. There are very big differences. So, I mean, the obvious things are going to make a difference. Access to hospitals, you know, having insurance, which allows you to get medical cover, unless you're in a country where there are state hospitals, uh, which are not overwhelmed so that you, you, you have a bed if a person needs that. The presence of comorbidities, there, there's you know, indications. You know, of course, this is a lung issue, so there is a clear indicator that smoking is, is, is going to be an, an adverse factor for people with, uh, with COVID-19, and certain populations are more likely to be smokers. So that's going to be a problem. 
there may be a benefit for being someone who is a blue-collar worker, maybe with an outdoor job. They've got sunshine, they've got physical labor. That actually might be to their advantage. So from a physical point of view, there are so many things affecting how likely they are to get infected. Of course, population is less dense in rural areas than city areas. So there's a lot of difference about people getting infected and, and how bad it really gets. When we talk about the financial impact of COVID-19 on, on these um, uh, upper, lower and lower middle income lives, I mean, there's many things going on. Of course, as the economy struggles, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Now, I as a professional uh, able to do my job uh, with my computer connecting to the internet from home or from a coffee shop. But if, if you're in any kind of manual job, you can't work from home. You have to be there. That's part of your job. So for a lot of people, if they, if they can't go in and do their job, it's a problem. And so the economic impact of losing their jobs is an issue. And certainly, even if people are sick, I mean, if people are doing office jobs and they get a cold, you know, sniffle, a bit of a fever, they can stay at home. But for a lot of people, they're living at the edge. The money they make is just enough for them and their family to survive. And for them to not go to work because they're feeling a bit ill, I mean, that could cost them their job, uh, and, and then they have financial ruin in other ways. So that's really unfortunate. They just don't have the financial buffer to turn around and say, well, I'm not going to work. But then, of course, that puts the risk of, rest of the, uh, uh, the workers at risk. That's unfortunate. Now, that's a lot of what's going on in the short run, but we have to realize that there is a a medium run and there's a long term that takes place as well. You know, people who are at even lower middle class are trying to save for retirement. They're putting some money away. If they lose their job, they're eating into their savings, which is fine. That allows them to survive in the short run. That basically means when they hit retirement age, they've got nothing. They've got no buffer. So we can't limit ourselves to what the financial impact is going to be only in the short run. We need to look at what the financial impact is in the long run. Um, you know, I'd seen a, um, a South African paper where they were talking about the impact of people getting coronavirus and dying and the impact of the lockdown where people lose their jobs and so they, you know, they die of uh, starvation and, and, and it is a really difficult decision. Do you let people get out and make a living or do you lock them down to try and prevent the disease breaking? And there is no right answer because lives are going to be lost either way. It feels a little bit cold to say which approach is going to result in the fewest number of deaths. Uh, it feels a little bit cold, but, but we may have to make decisions each country taking its own circumstances into account. Yeah, we may have to. Uh, we we may have to do that. These are very difficult decisions. Absolutely, and and these are items that the ILO is really grappling with. These these very topics that you've mentioned, um, the relationship between the economy and people's health, and how it's so completely interlinked. So, yeah, these are these are difficult questions. So. Again, thinking about insurers, I guess the important question for insurers is where this pandemic leaves them going forward. What do you think inclusive insurers should be thinking about in terms of managing their own risks? What do you think their main issues are? I mean, I think uh, 
Number one, as I said uh, uh, earlier on in our chat, inclusive insurers are there to meet a fundamental need for people. So the goal isn't trying to eliminate risk from their own balance sheet. They need to continue to meet people's needs. And we're just in a period where people's needs are very different and they need to, to take that into account. One of the bigger issues when you're dealing with perhaps the lowest socioeconomic lives, again, is that financial buffer. The insurance company might say, well, things are going to cost us more because more people are going to get sick and more people are going to die. So we have to charge a higher premium. But at the lowest socioeconomic end, a higher premium means perhaps that insurance is unaffordable. I mean, when it gets down to the area of microinsurance, I mean, microinsurance exists because it is, it's as efficient as possible. It's done at significant scale. Everything that could be done to make this work has been done. There aren't massive margins that uh, companies or individuals can use as, as buffers. So the insurance company is going to have to work with their, with their policyholders, trying to work out what do they need, what can they do to try and help them through this difficult time without basically forcing people inadvertently not to have any cover. And of course, there could be a financial impact. It could be a bit of a timing. I mean, we don't know. Is 2020 going to be a bad year, but 2021 is going to be a, a good year? Companies are, are going to have to look at that. And there are solutions. I mean, even inclusive insurers, it's to, you know, any insurance company can work with the reinsurance company to try and pass some of that risk to help them with the timing and the, the adverse scenarios. The problem is it's really hard to buy insurance or reinsurance when you're right in the middle of a pandemic because people That's are dying and the disease is spreading. So you can't just step back and say like, uh, okay, now I'm going to buy cover. A lot of companies are, 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 are having to control that. And if they don't control that, the impact on, on them as insurers or reinsurers is going to be very significant. So they can't just ignore the current circumstances. What it does mean, though, is that things are going to go wrong this year. It's affecting individuals. It's affecting insurers. It's affecting reinsurers. We're trying to solve this as best as we can. But moving forward... Once this COVID-19 has, has, has been solved uh, at some point, whether it's at the end of this year or the end of the next year, we don't know. But once it's been solved, companies are going to have to look very carefully at what happened, what could have been done, what should we have known. And they're going to move forward. They're going to say, like, what do we do to protect ourselves? So for a, an insurer, even an inclusive insurer, if they'd already had a very strong reinsurance program that protected them against significantly adverse outcomes, they would be okay right now. That would be a reinsurer's problem, not theirs. So companies are going to look very carefully at what are their capital buffers? What is their risk appetite? What reinsurance can they buy? So we know that companies are going to be better prepared in future. We just have to see how they're going to deal with things now. And just generally, when a, a person comes along to buy insurance, again, depending on the nature of the insurance they're buying, there may be an underwriting process or there may be exclusions. Well, underwriting, you know, how, how, how do you take a, a lot of people, even if they have to go for medical tests in countries where there is a lockdown, they cannot go to a, a doctor's office and get a series of blood tests in order to buy their, their, their life 
cover or that that, that, that insurance. So um, a lot of things are very difficult. And we also know that, you know, a lot of people are going to get infected and survive, but they may have a permanent impact on their bodies, you know, a permanent damage to their lungs, significant damage to kidneys, liver, lungs, and that's a problem. It may be very difficult for people like that to buy insurance in future. So, so many challenges, but we cannot forget that I know we talk about inclusive insurance, but insurance fundamentally serves a social need. It's there to help people. So I certainly hope that insurance companies are not going to treat this as a pure numerical exercise. They need to remember that people need cover. And I really want to see companies innovating to make sure that even people who have been affected somehow can get cover uh, in future again. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that we we say at the ILO's impact insurance facility when it comes to inclusive insurance is that we don't want complicated exclusions and underwriting processes. So I think, you know, what you say about insurers not tending towards, uh, you know, trying to exclude people is is so important. But I guess at the same time, insurers want to stay solvent. So it's quite a, a difficult balancing act that I guess they will need to they'll need to reach. The other thing I wanted to ask you, I've I've spoken to a couple of insurers and they actually say that what they're experiencing in the short term is that their their claims have actually gone down significantly in terms of numbers and amounts, I guess because especially on the health side, people are too scared to go to hospital and they're putting things off, delaying things. And perhaps, you know, some of the other risks that people might have been experiencing when they have more interaction with, with each other are, are being kept at bay. But then some insurers feel like this is the, the tide pulling back before the tsunami. And that as soon as all these lockdown measures are um, released, there's going to be a surge in all this pent-up demand. So I guess this does ask, you know, one does ask if insurers shouldn't be giving some kind of premium rebate right now, because people are obviously f- facing these really difficult economic times. But is that wise, given that there is this possibility that things may be worse in the future? What are your thoughts? Uh, great insight, Lisa. Yes. So, so I think there are different categories of conditions. So one is someone might have a terrible tummy bug and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, yeah, it's a tummy bug, just you know, do the best you can and you'll be okay because they don't want to go to the hospital now uh, uh, because of this COVID situation. They, they, they go to the hospital. It takes them a little bit later, longer to recover, but they recover anyway. So that is a doctor's visit that was avoided. It was a prescription that was avoided. And so that involves an actual savings. We know, for example, that uh, you know if people are not driving their cars, they are they're not dying in car accidents. So we're certainly seeing a lot of problems, like 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 uh, uh, you know accidental deaths are going down just because people are being quarantined. So that's a positive outcome. And I've I've heard about uh, car insurance in, in, in some countries where they're giving back significant uh, uh, refunds on the premium because people's cars are just sitting there in the driveways and, and not going uh, anywhere. 
Another category of, of, of conditions is there's a, an article in New York Times called something like, a, where have all the heart attacks gone? And they're trying to understand why are we not seeing heart attacks? Are people dying of heart attacks at home and never making it to the hospital? But, you know, they seem to suggest that the actual number of heart attacks is going down. And that might be the case. We know that immediate pollution, you know, significant changes in pollution can already affect people's uh, heart attack risk. So are we seeing heart attacks going down uh, now because pollution is so much better than it was a few months ago? Maybe that is an immediate improvement. Maybe more people are exercising. More people are doing home cooking with natural foods rather than highly sugary uh, foods in restaurants and lots of processed pasta and stuff like that. So maybe we're actually seeing certain improvements in mortality. But then we're also seeing other things where people who should have checked out a chest pain or people should have checked out a lump that they've discovered on their body, they, they, they wait until the outbreak eases off and that two or three months could actually make the difference between life and death. So there's an example of where things are going to get worse. And then you get the scenario which you described as well, where people, for example, hip replacement surgery where they need the hip replacement, that's not going away simply because COVID-19 is around, but they can wait. And if they wait six months or they wait a year, then they are in a position where they can have a bit of a catch. We've seen that even with you know what, what, what I've nicknamed many pandemics, we've seen that in the past where people are nervous, they don't go to the doctor, they don't go to the hospital. We see a reduction in claims for that period. But then, as you say, there is a bit of a catch-up that takes place. So there are so many moving parts, some actual lives are being saved, some deaths are being caused by the delay, and some it's just a, a timing point that surgery is going to happen one way or the other. So I think it might be a little bit too aggressive to be providing refunds, but uh, you know companies do need to watch this. And if there really is that significant an improvement, let's hope they do the right thing with the uh, excess profits that they may have made. But, you know, there's there's debts and there's health uh, covers as well. There's so much going on. I don't think it's a, a simple switch of refunding this or reducing that. I think there's it, it's multifactorial. Absolutely. Maybe it also depends on the, the type, the line of insurance and measuring up all these very complex factors. Let's turn to technology quickly. So technology is something that we focus a lot on because it helps keep expenses low, and especially when you're talking about inclusive insurance, you want those expenses to be as low as possible. Do you think technology can come to the rescue even, even more so now in this period of the pandemic? I mean, without a doubt, technology is allowing us to do things we wouldn't have been able to do beforehand. So whereas previously companies, uh, individuals would have bought insurance on a face-to-face basis, they'd meet an agent or a financial advisor, a lot of insurance is being done online. People are researching insurance online, they're using maybe maybe insurance policy comparison sites for just deciding what cover they need to do. And companies are even relaxing to the point where they're allowing signatures to be done online as well. Now, that can't just take place, very often the regulator has rules around, uh, you know, 
people have to do a wet signature to, to, to get this cover in place. Whereas we're seeing a number of regulators around the world are actually relaxing and they are accelerating their plans for this kind of thing so that people are at the moment buying covers, including the signature online. And, uh, uh, you know, I've recently bought a policy as well. And my signature was done on my, uh, on, on my phone um, without having to do any paper signatures. So technology is allowing this to take place. We've certainly seen that it keeps uh, new business uh, numbers uh, up, even when there is a lockdown and people can't get out. We're seeing issues around telemedicine. People previously might have uh, gone in to see the doctor, but now they can do certain consultations via a video conferencing session. We're going to see a lot more of that taking place. You know, I wear something called the Aura Ring, which sits on my ring. It measures my heart rate and my heart rate variability, and it measures my temperature. And, you know, this, uh, this company Aura is, is, is doing a lot of research to see whether they can start to predict who's about to come down with coronavirus. And if you can warn people before things start to get bad, that would be a really interesting income and allow people to, to isolate even more strictly, even sooner than they might otherwise have done. So we're seeing technology making a big difference in so many different ways. And even if life kind of returns to normal, it'll never be back to the old normal, but even if it kind of returns to normal, I think the reality is a lot of people will have done an online purchase of insurance policy, an online consultation with a doctor for the first time ever. And next time they need to make their choice, it's just going to feel a little bit easier to do it online again next time, online with the doctor, saving time, being more convenient. So without a doubt, there is going to be a significant shift in how things are done moving forward. And insurance is no exception. Great. So Greg, talking about the future, what do you foresee as the longer-term implications of this pandemic for the insurance industry and especially for those focused on financial inclusion? I mean, I, I think the truth is I don't know. <laughs> we, we, we haven't even seen this outbreak peak. I mean, it looks like the numbers are, are, are leveling off, but you know, the possibility of second, third, fourth waves, are, it's sitting right there. So we just don't know what's going to happen. But there will be there will be long, uh, long-term implications. Some of these are going to be quite technical in nature. I think companies are going to have to start to hold a, a bigger buffer against events like this in future. So this is going to put capital strain on companies moving forward, which may result in some of the less well-funded insurance companies having having problems. We don't know. see the big problem with the pandemic, and that's what I was, was trying to say at uh, actual conferences that I spoke at uh, a couple of years ago, is when a pandemic happens, even a mild pandemic, everything starts to go wrong. If claims go up, health claims go up, assets go down, you know, life and non-life claims are going up. There's business interruption and event cancellation. So everything's going wrong. Interest rates go down, falling stock markets, loan defaults, everything goes wrong. And whenever companies hold capital, they often take diversification into account. Well, <laughs> on this particular occasion, there is no diversification because everything's going wrong at the same time. So I think companies are going to have to look very closely at the capital that, they, uh, that they're doing to make sure that in future, they are well-funded against similar events. 
people are going, you know, people have been quite, uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't need insurance, I'm young and healthy. I think this is really going to change the nature of insurance. A lot of people are realizing that they cannot skip insurance. Things do go wrong and they need in prote- need protection. So maybe we start to see a shift from insurance being sold to insurance being bought because people really need the cover and they realize that now. And by the same token, a lot of insurance companies who are a bit relaxed about their reinsurance programs may find themselves buying more reinsurance making sure that it covers them for events like uh, pandemic outbreaks. So uh, risk management is going to change. We've discussed already the technology that's completely changing how insurance will be uh, made available in future. So that's going to improve things. As to how the impact is going to be in the inclusive finance, inclusive insurance sector, again, it's hard to tell these particular individuals, you know, they have access technology in some cases and not so much in other cases. So online solutions maybe are not that useful for them. But uh, I think there are going to be, you know, there are organizations like the the, the ILO, you guys are keeping an eye out to make sure that, that they don't get excluded, even if there is a big leap in the technology, which allows us to blend into our new way of life you know, people will make sure that they that they do get included, uh, whether that means more group style covers to make sure that they remain as efficient as possible. It's really hard to say, but uh, you know, things, uh, things are going to shift and people will need it from the, the, the lowest economic levels all the way through people need protection. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier how insurance can play that very important role in society and um, risk management. Do you think, looking at it from from society's point of view, do you think that there is one area that is being neglected that perhaps insurance companies could be playing a, a bigger role in helping society? What do you think? I would say at the moment the 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 main area where we're where where I think that there is some neglect is in the area of 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 mental health. We're worried about people's health and not infecting others, and we're we're making sure that they don't get infected, and if they do get infected, they get the treatment they need. But there are a huge number of people who are in a very vulnerable position at the moment. We've uh, seen discussions around there is a spike in domestic violence. People are stressed and, and, and you know, they take it out on, on their partners and, and they can't go anywhere in the event of a, a lockdown. Some people have families to keep them amused and, you know, to interact with and other people live alone. And during a lockdown, they remain alone. And that's that's really bad. It can be isolating. I'm sure it can be depressing. I'm worried about a massive increase in, in, in suicides as this continues on. Uh, people sometimes just need someone to talk to. And I know insurance companies want to look after their policyholders. But, you know, it's really hard to focus only on your policyholders. I, I really think it, it must be possible for insurance companies to do more, even even helplines to assist people during their stress if they're feeling isolated or depressed. You know, people who have depression already and have been seeing therapists, it's a much more difficult scenario to get the support they need. So 
I, I do worry about that. And, and we have to use technology here. So tying back to an earlier question, these AI chatbots that, that they're using for customer service, it, it feels maybe a little bit cold to be saying, well, let's use AI chatbots to, to help people. But the, the, the way they interact with people and the kind of advice they give and the fact that they appear to be listening, I don't understand why that technology isn't much more being made available because it's, it's, it's infinitely scalable when it's technology. And I'd love to see a lot more being done, not only for insurance companies looking after their policyholders, but looking after anyone who, who has an internet connection, who really feels disconnected, who's feeling depressed, who needs help. And I'd love to see the insurance companies put their money, put their brands behind this kind of thing to support. And again, there are, we need to learn to connect people. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who are prepared to help. They're locked down, they've lost their jobs, but they're doing okay. And there are a lot of people out there who need assistance and they need their help. And we, you know, I'd, I'd love to tie up the technology and, and pair people together to, to have these discussions because mental health is a problem and it's tough now and we're only a few months into this. But in three months time, in six months time, in a year's time, we have no idea how this uh, uh, disease is going to progress. And so, you know, things things are likely to deteriorate as time goes on. So, yeah, I would love to see a much bigger focus on mental health. Greg, those are some excellent ideas. Um, I might be in touch with you to talk about that last one. So that that actually brings us to the end of our, our interview and our podcast today. So thank you so much again for, for being on our show. I really enjoyed asking you questions and, and listening to your answers, and I'm sure that our listeners will too. So thank you very much. Thanks, Lisa. Great questions and, and all the best uh, to your listeners. Hoping everyone stays safe and uh, look after your mind and your bodies. You have been listening to the ILO Social Finance Podcast on financial inclusion, impact insurance, and sustainable investing.